I'm Harold Kim, one of the pastors, and it is my privilege to continue in our Gospel of John sermon series. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to John chapter 18? It'll also be projected overhead, verses 1 through 11. We're picking up at a very crucial point now. I've entitled it Agony for the I Am, as Jesus knows that he's making his way toward the cross. So let's give our full attention to this, uh, verses 1 through 11, John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Okay, this is God's word for us today. We're going to start with a remarkable revelation of Jesus. In the Greek and also in the English, there's a literary device that just drives you to the center. So the centerpiece is a remarkable revelation. It's verses 5 and 6. Where Jesus says twice, I am he. I am he. Two dialogues surround this revelation. And in the Greek, it's only two words, not three. I am. I am. That's the centerpiece of this whole story. Now, I know of famous people that go by one word names. Ichiro, a great musician, Prince, and then he kept changing his name. But here Jesus is saying, I am, that is a verb. <laughs> That's a verb. And it has remarkable effects when he reveals this about himself. You have to know the biblical pattern behind it as to why it was so remarkable and striking. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses comes up to God and says, what am I going to tell people about you? How should I describe you? In other words, God, what is your name? God tells Moses Tell them, my name is, I am what I am. And then in the same Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus once declared, before Abraham was. Now, Abraham is the great forefather of faith to three dominant world religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And here's what Jesus claimed. Before Abraham was, I am. 
And make no mistake, when Jesus said, I am, people wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him, execute him. Because they knew precisely what Jesus was claiming. And Jesus claims it again here in John chapter 18. Jesus is outright saying, I am God. Absolutely equal with God. I am God come down in human flesh. This is the revelation. And my friends, Jesus claims something here that no other popular religious leader has ever claimed. Every religious leader tells you something about, well, I can tell you something about God, how to get to God, where is God, what is God like, maybe how you should approach him. Here's what Jesus claimed. He says, but I, I am God in human flesh who has come down to you. I am God who has come down to you. Now, as Jesus revealed this, my friends, uh, I'm not oblivious to the fact that this may not be that remarkable because it all depends upon, well, what is God? Uh, a theologian said in his divinity test, it had simply one question, what is God? Explain. And a lot of pap uh, pages to fill out. How would you fill it out? For Jesus to say, I am God, well, what is God? What exactly does Jesus claim to be? And some very brilliant godly people in the past, which we subscribe to an honor, they summarize scriptural teaching in this document called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they dare to answer the question, what is God like? And in chapter two, section one, here's just how it begins. This is how it begins. There is but one only living and true God, one supreme, one exalted, one transcendent, one, who is infinite. Infinite literally means unbounded, unlimited, in being and perfection. That's how some people chose to begin to explain what is God like based on the Bible. Infinite in what? In being and perfection. Now, my friends, do you know what that means? That means there is no possible perfection in all of the cosmos that does not originate from or belong to God. God possesses all possible perfections, all kinds of perfections. There is no perfection that is not from God. And how perfect is God exactly? Precisely, can you explain to me in his perfections, to what degree is he perfect? Infinite in perfection. So he is infinitely perfect in all possible perfections. Some people say these perfections are called his attributes or the essential properties of God's nature. This confession goes on to say God is self-existent and independent. God is not derivative. He's not dependent. Like he's not reactive. He's not learning. He's not adjusting. He's not an overreactionary. He's not needing to be educated. He's not trying to download more information or data. Self-existent and utterly independent, he has everything in and of himself. His existence is necessary and prior 
and underived. One and only living true God who is infinite in being and perfection. He is self-existent and independent and God is eternal. Eternal, popular titles of God is everlasting father, alpha and omega, no beginning, no end. And along with his eternality and along with his infinite perfection, God is also immutable. Immutable, just old language that he never changes. He's unchanging. Now, this actually results from the fact that he's absolutely self-sufficient, self-existent, free and absolute, and he's perfect. You see, God should never change. God should never change. Because the moment that God changes today or tomorrow, that would only mean one of two things that he either got slightly better or he got slightly worse. For God to ever change in the slightest, the author James says, with him there's no variation, no shadow of turning. There's not even the slightest changeability to him. Why? Because God is perfect in all of his perfections. And so thank God how many prayers God has said, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, here's something better. I am so thankful that when I pray to God, I'm not praying for God to change in his perfections. I'm praying that God would change me and people and circumstances around me. God is also most powerful. How powerful? This is all in the confession. Infinitely powerful. Unbounded, unlimited. God is also holy and just. How holy and just? Infinitely so. Here's how the confession of faith describes his infinite holiness and justice. Quote, God is most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. This means, my friend, every man or woman in position or power or authority or fame or wealth or influence who thinks that non-disclosure agreements will keep them safe for the rest of their lives, people who are under hiding under financial and legal and manip manipulative corrupted covers in Hollywood now are all being exposed. And I'm reading articles of how many producers and actors and mostly men are just shaking in their boots, quote, panicking that they themselves have treated women in the degrading, most awful ways with harassment and assault, which is utterly, utterly wicked and wrong. All of it being exposed, just even in this lifetime, just with human judges, human reporters, human investigators, computers, my friend, God is infinite in his holiness and justice. No wicked deed or thought will go unpunished. Not in Harvey Weinstein, not in Hitler, not in Hugh Hefner, and certainly not in Harold. For any wicked thing or thought to go unpunished would mean God is not infinitely holy and just. Oh, the confession goes on to also say, though, he is infinitely good. This is all together. You don't pick parts that you like. God is perfect in all of his perfections. There's integrity, wholeness to God. 
He's infinitely good too. And the confession closes here on what is God like? He is most loving. He is gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, my friends, here's what's remarkable about Jesus revealing he is the I am. Jesus is saying, I am exactly and fully all of this. And even more so about Jesus is he didn't just say he is exactly and fully all of divinity. He showed it. He showed it. Go study the life of Jesus. Oh man, our church exists so that you would sense and feel and be changed by the living beauty and reality of Jesus who is God. This is the centerpiece of this entire passage and all that is to follow in this gospel, the revelation. Now I want us to look at the result. What is the result of when God reveals himself to you? What normally happens? Or how can you tell if the one and true and only God, infinite in being and perfection, actually shows up and you have an encounter with him? What is that like? Well, I'll tell you what it's like. It's right here. The Greek word is that there was a cohort of Roman soldiers that is not 20 or 25. That's 200 plus battle-hardened Roman soldiers. And they come around Jesus in a garden. But doesn't it puzzle you? Why do you amass such a massive force? Why so many soldiers? This is an unarmed man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's been called a rabbi. He's been performing miracles. He's been amassing crowds. He's been teaching with unparalleled authority. You saw him every day for like years. And he's surrounded by also unarmed men, a couple of disciples with no military background or experience. So why do you come out with all of this force? I'll tell you why. Because they knew deep down there was something utterly transcendent and diff different about this man. They were wary of him. They were wary of him. I mean, study the scene. They have 200 plus soldiers. They got Judas. They knew exactly where he was going to be. They're there to arrest him. But not one person dares to approach him first. Look at it. Not one person dares to talk to him first. Not one person goes and touches him first. Jesus has to allow himself to be arrested in this scene. Because everyone was so wary of him. And in verse 6, when Jesus says, I am he, I am, it records, they all fell down. They all fell down. <laughs> like a massive earthquake where you feel like your body is falling apart. So most modern critics, most people even in this audience, you're going to read this as, oh, that's made up. That's an exaggeration. A guy by the name of H.E.G. Uh, Paulus, his take <clears throat> was that when Jesus revealed himself as I as he, the soldiers merely trembled and they did a double take. 
But John says, mm, no, it went way beyond the double take. They fell to the ground. Now, how can we verify if this is true? How can you believe that the Gospels are firsthand historic records? How could you even in his day believe that this account is not exaggerated? He tells us how right here. He gives you this one name, Malchus, Malchus. Why does he give you that name? Because he says, go find a man, he's missing an ear. And when you find the guy missing an ear who happens to be Malchus, why don't you go ask him? Hey, when Jesus said, I am, did everyone fall down? Now, how is it that an entire cohort of Roman soldiers fell down at the sound of two words? It's because for a brief split moment in the garden, before Jesus lays aside his glory with humiliation and suffering upon his crucifixion at the cross, just for a brief moment before he gets humiliated and crucified, he's going to give us a lightning bolt of his true identity. He's going to unveil, throw open the curtains of heaven. It's like Superman throwing open his chest. And you see a ginormous S. And here's what Jesus is doing. He is unveiling his true godness. And people can't take that. Remember Keanu Reeves in the movie The Matrix? When he finally figures out he's not just a handsome looking guy but he's Neo, the one. I should have caught that early. It took me a long time. But he figured out, I'm the one, I'm the one. I'm the one that could break this whole system. And toward the end of the movie, he flexes, and then the picture mutates. This is Jesus flexing just a little. And people fall down, you feel like you're gonna fall apart. That's what always happens. That's what always happens when a true and living God shows up with very small, fallen, sinful creatures. You know, in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, when the glory of God fell upon a temple, it reads, the priests, the priests, not the average, normal, regular people. No, the priests who had to always wash themselves and make sure their procedures were precise. They could not stand in the presence of the glory of God, they all fell down. Another anointed prophet by the name of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter six, when he actually came face to face and all the angels were singing, holy, 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 holy is the Lord. It reads, he wanted to disintegrate, fall apart. He wanted to die. Why? Because if the reality of someone that much bigger, the reality of someone that much better, of the reality of that one so much more beautiful and pure and truthful shows up, everything starts to feel like you're going to fall apart. 
You know, there's a common mistake today, especially in our American culture, where people want God to move in nice and easy, nice and easy. Let's have churches where God comes to you nice and easy, nice and easy. I wish it were nice and easy. If it were up to me, I'd always want God to come in nice and easy. But do you know how God has moved into my life? Usually it hasn't been nice and easy. It's been abrupt. It's been shocking. It's been traumatic. It's been painful. You lose a relationship. You lose your health. You lose your job. You lose someone you love. You lose your abilities. And it's all flipped upside down. It's like a tornado. But maybe, maybe, maybe. Hey, my friend, can you hang in there? Maybe you'll find God right in there because God is helping you to see what is life? What is your life really all about? See, when Jesus revealed himself as God, purely God, people fell down. You feel so small. I've done my absolute best this week to not make my whole sermon about the Dodgers and my disappointment and dejection. But I waited, haven't I? I waited pretty good. I go, oh, Harold, you're doing pretty good today. Wow, you didn't bring it up until now. But here's what I thought this week. I went back to a past trauma. I really did. I used to play in Torrance American Boys Baseball. It's called Tab. I happened to be a pitcher. Hard to believe. And I recollected that there was this one lanky, red, curly-haired kid named Scott Griffith. I will never forget that name. Scott freaking Griffith. His middle name must have been freaking. And it didn't matter what I pitched him. Curveball, which didn't really curve. Fastball, ball, home run. Next time up, home run. Next time up, home run, hit a car. Pass a right field fence. And do you know what I instinctively did? I forgot how old I was. The next time he up, I hit him. I took him down, but it didn't hurt. My fastball was so slow. And I replayed to myself, what a wicked kid you are. Why did you do that? I'll tell you why I did that. I couldn't stand it that that guy was that much better. You know, I don't even like going bowling with people who bowl near 200. I don't like you, like go somewhere else. <laughs> and you see, what do you do with people who are, I'm not just talking slight, I'm just talking like infinitely better, like they're just that much smarter. Or you go into the presence of some stunning transcendent beauty. I have a friend who tells me about this old, old like pop star way back when, when I was like in college. And he met this, supposedly this woman in real life. And I asked, you know, what was it like? And here's what he told me, almost verbatim. Harold, she's not human. Her skin glows like an alien. She's more beautiful than you could imagine. I said, this can't be right. But if you get in the presence of someone that much more superior, what do you do? What do you do? How much more... How much more with God? 
You know, Bruce Lockerbie in a book entitled Dismissing God, A Modern Writer's Struggle Against Religion, traces Emily Dickinson, Ernest Hemingway, popular English lit authors, who most of whom grew up in Christian homes, and he probes why most of them abandoned Christian faith. Conclusion, because the laws of God defy our lifestyles. Let me translate that. Why most people would abandon and and be just so turned off by Jesus revealing I am, because that means I am not. For Jesus to reveal I am, that reveals you are not God. And this results in an overwhelming, sometimes upsetting, crushing, fall apart type of experience. But my friend, I want to tell you, that's usually how the living God works. The Jewish leaders, Pilate, Roman soldiers, Judas, everyone wants a king to do what they want him to do. C.S. Lewis once observed, the world will believe in a God that does nothing and demands nothing and leaves you alone, an innocuous God. So we have the revelation of Jesus. Make no mistake, he takes upon the very name of God and he shows that he is God. I am he, the revelation. Then you see the overwhelming result. But third, oh, and how we need the third. There has to be a resolution, doesn't there? The resolution. Notice what Jesus said when he's about to be arrested and taken away in a garden. They keep asking, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And did you notice in verse eight, so if you seek me, let these men go. Doesn't take much to figure out, hey, if you're the leader of an insurrection or you're committing treason, the soldiers would come and not only arrest and maybe execute the leader, but your whole tribe, your whole band, right? That would make perfect sense. And Jesus should have just given up Peter right there. Peter cut off the guy's ear, but in the next verses, literally the next verses, is going to deny him three times. And we just read, Jesus knows everything that's going to happen, but he doesn't give up Peter. He doesn't even turn on Judas, who led the soldiers to him. And he doesn't give up on his disciples, who basically fell asleep, according to the other gospel records, when he was a friend in his greatest need. He doesn't give them up at all. Here's what he says. Don't take them. Don't take them. Don't take them. Let them go. Take me instead. Oh, the resolution that Jesus offers where he will give up himself so that his people can be let go. People have come to arrest him and to betray him and hate on him and hurt him and mock him and envy him to the point of death. Jesus will allow himself to get arrested by these very men because he will return to arrest us with the most unexplainable act of love. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested with hate so he could turn around and respond to arrest you with love. My friend, John chapter 10, Jesus announces, no one is gonna take my life from me. 
No one's gonna overpower me. No one's gonna force me. No one's going to make me lay my life down. John chapter 10, but the good shepherd who is Jesus, he lays down his life for the sheep. Absolute divinity, but what love for divinity to lay himself down before his creatures. So when Jesus tells Peter in verse 11, put your sword back in its sheath, put it away, put it away. What are you trying to do? You're trying to defend me? What a joke. These men just fell down by me saying two words. You really think I need your sword? Put away your sword. I'm about to fall under the sword. And in essence, here is what Jesus was telling Peter. Peter, step aside. Let me fight this one for you. Let me make a way for you to stand before God someday by laying myself down in your place. Jesus, in essence, showed and told Peter, let me lay myself down for you so you can stand before my God the Father. Jesus told Peter that. Do you think he could be telling you that? Make a way, stand aside. It's not by strength, it's not by smarts, it's not by sword, but it's only by a substitute savior. For when Jesus mentions, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me in verse 11? In the Greek, the word appears, this is the beginning of the agon, the agon of Jesus. The agon of Jesus. Oh, you know where we get the English word now. Agony comes from the Greek word agon. Because as you step aside and as a substitute savior, he is resolute now. This is his resolution. For any human being to dare stand before an infinitely holy and perfect and true God, Jesus must drink the cup that the Father gives him. What is this cup? In other places, he tells his disciples, you can't even drink this cup. What's in the cup? Jesus' agony begins with mentioning, I gotta drink a cup. No other human being could even drink the cup. What's in the cup? What's in the cup? Do you remember God is holy and just? Do you remember that no wicked thing will ever go unpunished? And do you remember how holy and just he is? God is infinitely so. And in the cup is infinite punishment from an infinite God for infinite, infinite offenses where all of us say, I can't stand it that you are God. I need to be God. And Jesus is saying, I'm gonna have to drink that. Now, friends, just stay with me. Do you know that Jesus is the only one qualified to even drink that? That's why he told the disciples, you can't drink it. Remember what's in the cup? How much holiness? How much wrath? How much justice? It's not like a great, great massive amount, insurmountable debt. No, let's go beyond that. It's infinite. It's infinite. So Jesus is the only one qualified because he himself is I am. He's infinite. 
He's God himself. So only an infinite sacrifice can gulp down and be suffer and executed of the price tag or the cost of what's in that cup. At the same time, Jesus, who is fully divine, had to also be fully man. He had to be fully human because only a human being can substitute and take the place of someone else, represent other human beings. And so of all the religious leaders or heroes or inspirations or gods out there, Jesus alone is qualified to even go through with saving humanity because the Savior has to be both fully and exactly human and divine. And he drinks the cup. Uh, J.K. Rowling, I've referred to it, and please, you know, don't judge my lack of sophistication here. J.K. Rowling in the novels with Harry Potter has this one scene with Dumbledore. I don't know if he's human or not. All you nerds can tell me later and correct me. I don't know if he's human or not, but Dumbledore goes into this cave, and there's this horcrux filled with curses, and, and, and basically... It's the curse of Voldemort. Voldemort is Satan, if you can't figure that out. But anyways, but Voldemort is like the devil, and they're trying to get rid of Voldemort, and they have to get rid of this potion, this curse. And here's what Dumbledore, the wizard, the older one, tells Harry Potter before he drinks it. He, in essence, tells him, Harry, I know this is going to be so excruciating. It's going to drive me mad and senseless, and I'm probably going to beg you to kill me instead. Harry, I need you to promise me, though, as I drink this cup all the way down to the bottom, you will allow me and force me to do so. And that is just a little glimpse of the agony of Jesus Christ, who drinks down a cup full all the way down to its bitter dregs of wrath and punishment and justice that you and I so well deserve. But my friends, this morning, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That because of his agony, there is no agony left for you and me. Because of his agon, all the way to a cross. And if you see and embrace and worship this man, this God-man, the Superman who went in your place. And if you see that it is to die for your sin, to take your punishment, to take your justice. Oh, my friend, the good news declares, there is not an ounce of agony left for you to make up for God's love. Not one. You don't have to sweat more. You don't have to cry more. You don't have to bleed more because Jesus bled and cried and died all of his agony, all the way down to the depths is enough to make up for God to love you. Wholesale, immutable, infinite, eternal. Oh, you say, well, pastor, but I'm still going through agony right now. What is that about then? You just said I have no agony left. Yes, there's no agony left for you to make up to be loved by God. But whatever agony you're going through now, here's all I know. I assure you it's not because God hates you. I assure you it's not because God likes you suffering. But I assure you that agony is going to be somehow redeemed in the infinite remarkable love to come. My friend, this morning you can know that you can stand before a holy, perfect God 
Not because you're so strong, not because you're so spiritual, not because you're so smart, but simply because you know Jesus is a substitute savior who laid his life down for you. Let him. And then love him for it. But I want to close with this. Not only did Jesus make a way for people to stand before God, let's close with this. Do you see how Jesus demonstrates the highest use of power? Jesus demonstrates a heavenly use of power. He basically demonstrates how you should use power. He surrendered his power, gave up his power, so that he could give life to others. He surrendered, laid his life down to empower and heal and touch and love and serve and give life to others. That is how Jesus uses power. All Christian leadership, all Christian ministry is not about gaining power and control. It is really about how to use power the way Jesus did. And the last two Sundays in a row, for some reason, I've had the privilege to be at where pastors become official, lifelong pastors. It's called ordination service. And I was able to give a charge and someone else, I heard a charge back-to-back Sundays. And our messages are basically the same because here what we both shared. In a life where you really want to lay your life down for others, in a life of ministry, of service, of building other lives, I assure you, you will come to a point where you feel like you have lost all your powers. But at the limits and at the death of your own powers, my friend, at the limits and after the death of all your powers, that's where you can find Jesus Christ. And that's when he comes in and he flexes. Has Jesus taken your place so that you might stand before God? And is Jesus teaching us, shaping us to use all power the way he has used it with us? Let's pray. Father in heaven.